And with that said, um, we are going to dive into God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And the title of this sermon is The Will of God in the Christian Life. And if you don't have a Bible, and there's Bibles under your chairs for you, um, we'd love to give those as a gift to you if you don't have one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Well, how many of you want to know God's will for your life? Uh, While I still consider myself somewhat young in the ministry, I have been in the ministry long enough to see some emerging patterns. And one of those patterns is the desire to know God's will. In other words, more often than not, when people come and talk to me as a pastor, They're asking that question in one way or another. What should I do with my life? Where should I work? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What's God's will for me? Today's text will speak very directly to this question, but not in the way that some of us might think. So let's dive into God's word together. 1 Thessalonians 4 Verses 1 through 8. This is God's word to us. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so much more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. As we get into this text, I want you to notice this first word that Paul uses here. Finally. I love this. We've still got two full chapters to go in this book, and Paul's using the word finally. Classic preacher, right? The old joke goes, what does it mean when a preacher says in conclusion? Nothing. (laughs) So why does Paul use the word finally here? It's not because he's concluding. It's because he's transitioning into the main reason for writing this letter. He's saying we're finally there. There's a shift taking place at this point in the letter. And Paul does this in most of his letters. A lot of times he'll start with doctrine in the first half of the letter and then move on to commands in light of that doctrine. We see this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are all doctrine, statements of fact. Then, starting in Ephesians 4, 
we get commands for the Christian life. Very similar in structure in Romans. This is just how Paul writes. And before we get further into this text, I think it would be important for us to understand again this concept of law-gospel. The law-gospel distinction that Mike Abendroth taught us this summer. Law is due, and gospel is done. done. Awesome. Law is due, and gospel is done. But neither Mike, nor I, nor Scripture believe that law, or due, is unimportant or trivial in the Christian life. But the order matters. Remember the Ten Commandments. How do they start? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. It reads, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, out of the house of slavery. It's an indicative statement of fact, right? A statement of who God is and what he's done. Then he proceeds to give us the Ten Commandments. Imperative statements, commands, calling us to obey as God's children. The proper gospel order is that the indicative precedes or comes before the imperative. I'll say that again. The indicative precedes the imperative. So, as Christians, the first and most important truth for us to understand is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So here it is, indicative statements. Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. He lived a perfect life in every way. He died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty that each of us deserve for our sin. He rose from the grave, overcoming sin, Satan, and death. And if you repent and believe, you have union with Christ and will spend eternity with him. All of that is a statement of fact. It's truth. And in light of that come imperative statements, commands that God gives us as a response to the good news of the gospel. It'd be like a prisoner who was set free. I would tell them, you're free. The shackles are released. The prison doors open. You're pardoned. And in light of that saying, therefore, step out of your cell. Go out into the light. Rejoin your family. Live in freedom. The indicative precedes the imperative. Statements of fact come before commands in Scripture. Why am I telling you this? Because this is the shift that Paul is making at this point in our letter. He's getting to his reason for writing to the Thessalonian church. He's about to give them some commands. And what I'm wanting you to see is that this doesn't make Paul anti-gospel or legalistic. Not at all. 
These commands only come in light of the good news of Jesus. So let's keep going. Look at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Look at these verbs. Ask and urge. Think of Paul like a a personal trainer here. He's not just giving them good advice. He's more forceful. He's urging them because he wants what's best for them. They already trust in Jesus, but Paul's wanting them to become more conformed to Jesus' image here. And he's not just referencing his own authority, is he, as an apostle. He's urging them in the Lord Jesus. What does he say next? He says that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. To walk and to please God. This is key. You might remember from our series in Colossians or Ephesians that when we see this this word walk, it means way of life. Walk is way of life. And I love that Paul uses this language. While sometimes the Bible uses the metaphor of running the race, Paul most often refers to the Christian way of life as a walk. It's slow steady, and often somewhat unspectacular. I mean, it's not Usain Bolt. It's a walk. And I think this is what Paul's trying to communicate. The Christian way of life is a marathon and not a sprint. It takes long and steady commitment. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not meant to be an emotional burst of energy. It's often not fancy. It's a walk. It's, as Eugene Peterson once famously said, a long obedience in the same direction. I love that. That's what the Christian life is. A long obedience in the same direction. So Paul is urging them towards a truly Christian way of life. A walk that pleases God. Now, This is where our discussion of law gospel comes back into play. Understand that if you're a Christian, if you've repented of sin and believed in Christ, if you're a Christian, God is pleased with you because of Christ. You don't earn God's pleasure. You already have it in Jesus. Look at what God the Father says at Jesus the Son's baptism. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And here it is, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If you're a Christian, because you're in Christ, God is pleased with you because of your union with Jesus. And you can still do things that please God. It's like me with my children. 
I love them no matter what. There's nothing they need to do to earn my love. And they're still capable of doing things that please me as their father, that put a smile on my face. It's not about merit for salvation. It's about mutual joy. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 8. John 8, verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus loved pleasing His Father. It wasn't burdensome or legalistic. It was a joy to experience his father's pleasure. And notice that in our text, Paul isn't rebuking them. He's saying, or he's not saying, come on, get it together. You guys are failures. No, he's saying, you guys are already walking the walk. You're doing it. Do it even more. Keep going, Thessalonians. This is meant to be encouragement and affirmation. So, how does a Christian live to please God? Look at verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Pun intended, this is instructive. To help them with their walk, Paul not only gospeled them, he also instructed them. This is what good missionaries and pastors do. Foundationally, they share the gospel. And they teach or instruct in the ways of Jesus. They proclaim the indicative gospel. And they teach the imperative commands. Where did Paul get this model, you might ask? From Jesus himself. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is known as the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Do you see that? We typically rightly emphasize Jesus' call here to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is calling us to go and to share the gospel. But we often miss verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have what? Commanded you. That's what Paul's doing here in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Thessalonians were well gospeled. He's now reminding them to observe the commands of Jesus. He's reminding them of what he'd already instructed them in. The Christian life isn't about knowing more biblical truth than the pagans. It's about believing the gospel. Then, as a result of that, Obeying Christ's commands. True gospel belief always leads to action. 
It leads to all of life being transformed, according to Romans 12. So one more time. How does a Christian walk to please God? How does a Christian walk to please God? Verse 3. For this is the will of God. Let's stop right there. A Christian way of life is the will of God. And that brings us to the million-dollar question, doesn't it? To the question that we begin this sermon with. What is the will of God? What does Paul say? Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is sanctification? The word Paul uses here is hagiasmas, which comes from the word hagias, or holy. Sanctification is the process by which a Christian becomes more holy, more like Christ. In other words, holiness. That's God's will for your life. For you to increasingly become more godly. Isn't that simple? I know I've referenced this book before, but I'm going to do it again because I found it so helpful. By Kevin DeYoung, a book called Just Do Something. A liberating approach to finding God's will. Or, how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. <laughs> Great title of a book. Fantastic. I'll just give you the quick overview. DeYoung describes, I think correctly, that a lot of Christians speak about God's will in very confusing ways, as you can see from the title. They talk about God's will as if it's like a magic eight ball that we need to discern. Scripture, on the other hand, there's only two ways that the term will of God is used. Number one, God's declarative will, or God's will of decree. God's ordained will of sovereign decree. In other words, what God wills, will happen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, In him, meaning in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things, that not, uh, things, that, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God's declarative will, or will of decree. Then, the second way that scripture uses this term, will of God, God's will of desire. God's will of desire. What God desires from his creatures, from you and from me. 
De Young comments that if the will of decree is how things are, the will of desire is how things ought to be. A couple of passages that highlight this. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And here we go, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. God's will here is the way that God commands us to live. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, he equip you with everything good. Why? That you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The will of God is to do what's pleasing in his sight. One more. Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see that? The will of God is shorthand for obedience to God's commands. Our text today is in this same vein. We're dealing with God's will of desire for us as Christians. This is what God desires of us. Our sanctification. Our holiness. Our set-apartness. That we become increasingly like Christ. Here's what I want us to see. He's not hiding the ball from us, friends. It's right out in the open. This is God's will for your life. This is what brings pleasure to God. You and I, as his children, becoming more like him. God's will isn't complicated. He spells it out time and time again, plainly for us to see. Here's a, a really quick list. Number one, it's God's will that you be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. Two, it's God's will that you live transformed lives, Romans 12, verse 2. It's God's will that you have a good testimony to those outside of the church, 1 Peter 2.13-15. It's God's will that you suffer for living righteous lives, 1 Peter 3.17-18. It is God's will that you be spirit-filled, Ephesians 5.18. It is God's will that you be thankful, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. One commentator says it this way. He says, God's will is not something that has to be discovered. It's something that has only to be obeyed. That's exactly right. So often, we as Christians are looking for this hidden thing when the simple answers are right in front of us in this book, God's Word. Without going into great detail here, this is an incredibly freeing thing when it comes to making decisions. Should I go to this school or that one? Should I marry this person or that one? 
Should I do this job or that one? All of these are our real life decisions that we make. If your decision sanctifies you and you can do God's will that's already spelled out for you in the Bible, you're free. Make the decision. Now, there is such a thing as wisdom. We should ask for wisdom from God. And we should use wisdom in making decisions. But my point is, you don't have to be paralyzed in your decisions. God's will isn't hidden from us. Love God, be sanctified, and move forward. Back to our text. Paul has told us that we please God by doing God's will, and that God's will is our sanctification. Then he gets specific. In the coming text, over the next couple weeks, Paul will actually give three specific examples of how Christians are to live sanctified lives in our sexuality, our work, and then our response to death. Sex, work, and death. It doesn't matter what culture you're in, or what time in history for that matter. You're going to deal with these three things. God's word through Paul is seeking to instruct us. So here, Paul exhorts us to be holy in our sexuality. What does he say? Verse 3 again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Paul uses this word, porneia, here. It's used for the broadest category of sexual sin. In other words, it's broader than just adultery. It certainly includes adultery, but there's more than that. James Edwards comments that porneia can be found in Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice outside marriage between a man and a woman that is prohibited by the Torah. So understand this. The culture of Thessalonica was rampant with sexual immorality. Without getting into detail, you couldn't really escape it if you lived there. It was everywhere. And remember that Paul is writing to them from Corinth, another bastion of sexual immorality. It'd be like writing a letter from San Francisco to Vegas in our modern day. <laughs> Unfortunately, our culture today isn't all that different from theirs. Prostitution, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, fornication, sexual immorality. We've got it all. But it's so easy here to, to rail on the culture out there. I want to remind us that Paul's not writing this letter to the culture out there. He's writing it to the church in here. He's calling you Christian to do the will of God by abstaining from sexual immorality. 
We live in a sex-saturated world. It's borderline impossible to watch a television show, a commercial, or even a sporting event without having sex thrown in your face. Prostitution, adultery, and pornography are pervasive. But God's calling you, Christian, to be distinctly different from the world. Look again at verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see that? Remember, most of these early converts in Thessalonica were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. So Paul's speaking to a room full of Gentiles, and he's saying, don't be like the Gentiles. They don't know God. When you become a Christian, your primary identity changes. Thessalonican Gentiles are called out of darkness and into marvelous light to be given a new identity as children of God. They're declared to be holy because of Jesus' perfect life lived and his substitutionary death. What Paul is saying here is live in light of who you are as Christians. You know God. They don't. Control your sexual desires in holiness and honor because you know God and you've been declared to be holy. Now, it's super important that as Christians, we don't only talk about the negatives. Sex is a gift from God, but he's wisely given it to us with guardrails that, that keep us from going over the cliff and hurting ourselves and others. Sex isn't a dirty thing. God invented it, and he gave it to us for the context of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. Any sex outside of that is sexual immorality. But inside those good guardrails, it's an absolute gift from God. What I'm wanting us to understand is that neither God nor Paul is trying to keep something good from you, from the Thessalonians. What he is trying to do is to show us what God's will for us is as his children. God knows what's best for us, what will lead to our flourishing and our joy. He also knows what will lead to pain and heartache. When he gives us commands, it's always for our good. This one's no different. God's not a prude who's out to spoil your fun. He loves you, and he wants what's best for you. His will is your holiness in the area of sexuality. He also knows that you're swimming upstream as a Christian in this area. A Christian sexual ethic is diametrically opposed to the culture around us. But this is God's will for you. Not to keep something good from you, but because he has something so much better. So first, 
God gives these commands because he cares about you. But second, God gives these commands because he cares about others. This is still under the banner of God's will and your sanctification. But look at the text. Do you see all of the that's in this text? God's will, number one, is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Two, it's that you control your body in holiness and honor. Then three, look at verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Do we understand this? Sexual immorality isn't just a sin against God. There's real transgression vertically against God, yes, but also horizontally against brothers and sisters. When you commit sexual immorality with someone, you're doing so with someone's husband, someone's wife, either present in the case of adultery or future in the case of premarital sex. You're wronging a brother or a sister. John Phillips so helpfully says it this way. He writes, God has written no trespassing over every man or woman who is not one's own wife or husband. He has also posted the warning, trespassers will be prosecuted. When we commit sexual sin with another person, we cross a boundary that God never intended to be crossed. We are taking from someone something that does not belong to us. In essence, we are really saying to the other person, I do not care about you. Again, Paul is writing to the church here. He knows that matters of sexuality, matters of sexual immorality, never lead to unity in the church. It leads to heartbreak, pain, and often division. So why is Paul so concerned with this? Why is it a big deal to Paul? Well, because this is about God's glory. It's about God's glory. It's about God's people reflecting God's character. When the world looks at a Christian, they should come to understand what God is actually like. God should be glorified. So, if they're looking at Christians, and they see them having sex outside of a lifelong covenant commitment. They see a reflection of a God who's only in it for his own pleasure and isn't really all that committed and will lead to heartbreak eventually. As bluntly as I can say it, that's lying about God. God, the true God of the Bible, is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping committed, loving God of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, You make known to me the path of life, speaking to God. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If Christian sexual relationships are no different from the world, we lie about God. And look at the solemn warning that Paul gives us, verses 6 through 8. He says, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, 
as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. This isn't Paul's idea. It's God's. And to disregard it is to disregard God. It's to assume that we know better and that God is ignorant and stingy. It's to place ourselves in the place of God. It's idolatry. And so Paul's telling us solemnly, God is an avenger. He will justly pour out his wrath on all sin and idolatry, including sexual sin. But here's the good news. If you've committed sexual sin, you can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. When talking about this same set of issues, look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. This is so good. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. There's that word again. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, he writes. Paul's point here, and in our text today, isn't that if you've committed sexual immorality that you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying. His point is, if you've made peace with it, if you're comfortable with it, if you're unrepentant and clinging to it, it's evidence that you won't inherit the kingdom. It's evidence that... You see yourself as God, and God is something other than who he actually is. But verse 11 is such great news in 1 Corinthians 6. If you've committed sexual immorality in any capacity, and you repent and trust in Jesus, you're washed. You're sanctified or made holy. You're justified or made right with God. You can be forgiven. Why? Is it because God has stopped being an avenger? No. It's because Jesus took God's just wrath in your place. He took the penalty of death that each of our sexual sins deserve. And he gave us his righteousness or holiness. You, Christian, are declared holy because of Jesus' life and Jesus' death. Now, I intentionally left off the last few words of our text today. And now I want to come back to them. If it's God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality, and if it's true that we're swimming upstream in a sex-crazed world, is the solution just try harder, good luck? I hope not. It's not. God never calls us to anything and just leaves us alone to fend for ourselves. Look at the last seven words of our text today. This is beautiful. Verse 8. 
Who gives his Holy Spirit to you? Who gives his Holy Spirit to you? Do you know who's a tremendous helper in your holiness? The Holy Spirit. It's in his name. He helps you to be more like Jesus. He convicts us of sin. He points us to Christ. He empowers us to obey God's commands. Christian, in your battle against sexual immorality, you might be swimming alone against the culture. But you're not alone. God the Father has given you his will. Christ has lived and died to forgive you. And you've been given the Holy Spirit to help you grow in holiness. Each person of the Trinity is on your team. You're not alone in trying to do it by yourself. You're called to holiness. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has freed you, released your shackles, opened your prison cell, and he's called you to step into that freedom. He's even given you his spirit to help you walk out. So rest in the gospel. Trust in Christ. Rely on the spirit who's sanctifying you through God's word. This is God's will for your life, Christian. Your sanctification. Let's pray.